It's ad break time. I am pleased to announce the Beyond Solitaire podcast remains proudly sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning through games and simulations. And as usual, they are up to amazing things. If you want to improve your own skills as a game designer, you should absolutely sign up for Aloyla Santa's upcoming class, The Art of Game Crafting, for your classroom, boardroom, or game night. The class starts October 9th, and Aloy is a great teacher. You'll also get credit towards a certificate in applied game design, which is offered as a collaboration between CMU and Gen Con. CLGS's latest game, 500-Year-Old Vampire, just finished a very successful campaign, but if you forgot to back it, you can now pre-order through BackerKit. The link is in the show notes. I also want to plug my own Patreon. Your support means a lot to me, both emotionally and financially. Patreon money is what makes it possible to keep improving my channel by upgrading the equipment, and I'm also hoping to increase the amount of videos I can publish over the course of the next year. If you want to help out, head over to patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. For now, though, let's get on with the show. Hey, gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and this week on the pod, I have a very special guest. I have with me Dr. Wendy Robertson, the Associate Professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Central Michigan University. How are you doing, Wendy? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. It's so fun to have you on the podcast, and uh, I'm very excited to talk about science with you, because I normally have history people on here, but you do science. So tell us, tell us the basics of the kind of work that you do in terms of your research. Uh, sure. I'm a hydrologist by training, so I do water work um, for the most part. So um, I'm actually technically an eco-hydrologist, so I look at the intersections between uh, ecology, hydrology, climate change, and kind of looking at human-affected systems. So a lot of things like how resilient are wetlands to changes in water levels? Um, how do invasive species and invasive species killing off trees affect the hydrologic cycle? And so those are kind of the questions that I answer in my research. Um, at CMU, I am an associate professor in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. I am the program director for the environmental science program there. And so I work a lot with some really amazing and passionate students who are interested in going out there and using science and data to help improve the world that they live in. That's fantastic. And you and I are united by a common interest, which is uh, the Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations at CMU. So right. I know that you've been doing some work with CLGS. Uh, what is your current position there and what does it entail? Uh, so I was actually one of the founding members of the CLGS, along with Dr. John Truitt and uh, Dr. Daria Kluver and a handful of others, kind of looking at how we can incorporate serious games and academic games into our pedagogy um, in our classes. So from intro level classes all the way through graduate level classes. Um, right now, I am currently transitioning to being the uh, editor-in-chief emeritus of the Central Michigan University Press. Thank you, John Truitt, for taking back that duty. Um, but I've spent the last year helping the press kind of evaluate games and plan for these amazing launches that we have had, including some of the people who've been have had the opportunity to be guests on your podcast yes i do i do collect y'all like pokemon but <laughs> so i want to talk about your game the hydrologic cycle but before we get there um you know it seems it seems like you've had a long-running interest in gaming and pedagogy and getting games into your classroom so where did you get started with that and what inspired you to do it Oh, so I've been a gamer for a very long time. Um, I was a very, very nerdy child. And so I've, I've enjoyed gaming for a good long amount of time. I've 
dabbled around with developing games that are non-serious games, just kind of for fun for a while. And then I decided back in about 2014, 2015, when I first became an assistant professor at CMU, that uh, there were some of the topics that I was teaching in class that everybody was just kind of that, you know what I mean, they just kind of eyes glazed over, staring at the clock wishing it was over. And I'm like trying to explain how important these things, how fundamental and important these pieces of this are. And I figured, well, if you're not going to listen to what I say, then listen to what you do. And so I started incorporating games into my classes to teach those particularly more challenging lessons that I noticed just weren't going well with other approaches to pedagogy. So are these games that existed out in the wild already, or have you been making bespoke games for your classes to communicate what you want? I have been making bespoke games for my classes. Uh, so I don't play very much off the shelf at all. Um, I tend to do kind of a Frankenstein for some of them. So the mechanics from one, the ideas from another, mechanics from four, do a lot of that type of stuff. Um, but yeah, so none of this stuff is really off the shelf or easy mods. Um, but that's just kind of what I like to mess around with. I like to build things. So what goes into making a good game for a classroom? Like what group sizes are you trying to accommodate? And, you know, how complex can these games be? You know, what are, what are some of the, the ways that you've actually made this work? So I don't tend to um, look at something from that kind of a standpoint. So I do a little bit of backward design with a lot of my games where, I, again, I start with lessons or con concepts or units um, that tend to struggle to get traction. Mm -hmm. And I build from there with the learning objectives. And then I kind of build in, okay, so if this is the, this, these are the types of things that I want to get to, where do I start in from those? So I have built everything from two-player games up to multiplayer. And so by multiplayer, I mean I have a, a couple of, they are not RTTP approved. They are RTTP inspired um, games uh, that can run with 60 kids, uh, 60 students. So I run the gamut on some of those. Um, and some of these are like the hydrologic cycle game. You can play a round of it in five or 10 minutes. Um, some of my larger games, it takes a month, six weeks, eight weeks to fully run the game in, in the context of a classroom. And that all depends, the mechanics themselves all depend on what it is I want the students to get out of the lesson, the object. So theme first and then the game shape will follow. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know what RTTP is out there, it's reacting to the past. Several of my illustrious guests have been affiliated with RTTP. Uh, but uh, Wendy, what one thing that actually we talk about when we're having RTTP conversations is there are actually not enough science-y games uh, within the reacting community. So what kinds of inspiration were you able to take from reacting to the past and how did you apply that in a science classroom? I'm just legit curious. <laughs> Yeah, so um, the two games that I have that I kind of built largely from scratch, one is all about the Brazilian forest code. So 
uh, deforestation in the Amazon is a pretty complex co topic. Um, it has a lot of different um, feedback loops within the physics and the ecology and the science, but it's all driven by human interactions, interacted systems. So that's that doesn't exist without the human component of it. And all of that is underpinned by this thing called the Brazilian Forest Code, which is was the original setup for when you could could and could not do things within the Amazon. And so it goes, it dives into how it got built, um, the rationale behind it, the stakeholders that went in, the conflicts that existed there. Um, interestingly enough, I had a character based on Bolsonaro before he became president. Uh, and so that one kind of look, delves into the different kind of pile-on effects and feedbacks that happen within the Brazilian Amazon in the court in, in the context of the of the forest code. Um, I have another game which is again very loosely RTP inspired um, that actually delves into the Great Lakes water wars. So where should water go in the Great Lakes basin? What does it mean to have basin interbasin um, exchanges and so loss to other basins through either through export or through um, consumptive power use, et cetera. So we end up having these, these kind of questions of who should own the water, who should have rights to it, where it should go. And so it's kind of more of a hybrid between a little bit of RTTP because it does rely on some historical documents based on kind of the Great Lakes Compact, um, the provinces and the states that, um, that govern where water can go within the Great Lakes, um, but it's very model UN in the sense that most of it is having a conversation amongst these political stakeholders based on policy documents that they write, et cetera, about where water should go. So those are my two kind of mostly developed um, larger role-playing games. That's amazing. Uh, and then I do want to kind of focus down then to talk about the hydrologic cycle. Uh, sure. So that is a game that you're going to have published through Central Michigan University. Um, so is it your first published game? Like this, yes. Yeah. Ooh, like this. Okay. Expand. I have I have ninja I have ninja sent stuff out under pseudonyms that are non-serious, non-academic games. But yes, for this, for the purposes of this, yes. All right. I think we need to talk after off the air uh, secrets uh, to uncover. <laughs> Um, but I tell us about the hydrologic cycle. Um, what kind of game is it and what is it going to teach? I don't know what a hydrologic cycle actually is, so I okay. am just going to let you teach me. Well, great. Uh, so the hydrologic cycle game is an area control game. So you have a board and you have spaces and you've got cards and you're going through and you are placing your cards strategically to control the area of the board. Now, what the hydrologic cycle game is intended to teach kind of runs through kind of level one through about level four of Bloom's taxonomy. So we're, being, we're going through and we're starting at identification and recognition of terminology that may not be particularly familiar, um, then identifying um, and utilizing patterns and connections uh, to being able to quantify how these relationships are kind of playing out to being able to predict what might happen um, as you go forward. So... Do you know what a box model is? Nope. Okay. Awesome. So you know that water moves around the world. Yes. 
Okay. So there's a bit of a misnomer that people say when they say, oh, the world is running out of water. And the reason that I tend to call that a misnomer is, is that we aren't losing water to space. We aren't losing water to just it disappearing, right? Conservation of mass exists, right? We have the water. Um, it's just not necessarily in the places where we need it, in the quantities that we need it, and at the quality that we need it. And so when we talk about water scarcity, what we're actually talking about is, is the water is not where we need it to be in the quantity that we need it to be or the quality that we need it to be to do the things we want to do with it. And that's everything from showering to growing our food to powering our, our literal our power supply. Most of your power right now comes at a water cost. Everyone thinks, okay, there's a carbon footprint. Yes, there is a carbon footprint. There is also a water footprint to the majority of your daily life um, that is largely invisible to people. They don't necessarily think about it. When you ask people, okay, what's your biggest water use? They'll usually say something like, oh, I shower for 45 minutes a day. Or, oh, I have a pool. And in the summer, we end up having to fill the pool. Or I have a lawn. Those are almost never your largest water use. Uh, nearly always your largest water use is your diet and your shopping habits. Because everything that you are wearing required water to make it. Everything that you eat required water to make it. And that water came from somewhere. And so if we want to tag it back to wherever it was, it came from that farm field to grow that corn, to then purify that corn, to turn it into corn syrup, to have yourself whatever non-alcoholic soft beverage you would like, coffee, tea, soda, whatever it is, you're going to have a water footprint associated to those, just like you have a carbon footprint. More people are familiar with their carbon footprint because we've kind of pushed that as a result of climate change awareness, which is great. But you also have a water footprint for everything that you do. And so when we talk about water scarcity, we're talking about those types of issues. Now, all of that to back up, the hydrologic cycle describes how water moves and is transported and remains in different areas of the planet. So we have water in the air that we're currently breathing. There's water in the air outside. There's water vapor. Um, there are cloud condensation. So we've got ice. You've got little droplets of water to make the clouds. You have precipitation. You have glaciers. And you have sea ice. You have oceans. So we have places we can kind of store water and just bin it for a while. And we have places where water likes to move. Precipitation, for example, is a way that we move water from clouds in the atmosphere to the ground on our feet, right? And so when we think about the hydrologic cycle, there's a lot of different ways the water can move. And there's a lot of ways it can shortcut. And so it can move from one place to another back to the other place, right? So a good chunk of the rain that happens over the oceans re-evaporates right back in and then re-rains right back out. And so it has a relatively short time that it stays in either of those two reservoirs. But you get deep into the ocean where the currents kind of go deeper and deeper and deeper. That water can stay there for a very long time, like thousands of years. So that water, if it happens to go on that pathway, gets locked down. And we don't use it for things like growing your corn. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So a box model is our way to kind of simplify this very complex hydrologic cycle into these things called reservoirs and then transport processes. So a reservoir is where we would hold that water, a cloud, a lake, the ocean, rivers. And a transport process is anything that we could 
do to move that water from one reservoir to another? Precipitation, okay. evaporation, assimilation, which is you and I assimilating water, either through our food, through our drink, etc. Plants assimilate water. And so we we go through and we identify where water stays, how long it stays there, and then how it can get from place to place. So the map of the hydrologic cycle game is a box model of the hydrologic cycle. So we've identified these reservoirs and we've identified these transport processes. And so what you're playing in the hydrologic cycle game are a series of connected reservoirs and transport cycles. So for example, um, you can play a card for evaporation, which is a transport process to the atmosphere because water can evaporate from a lake into the atmosphere. You can also play lake and evaporation together because the lake itself is where the water's coming from when it evaporates. And so you can play these coupled reservoir and transport site processes to cover the, game, the area of the board. So when we've got all of these reservoirs and transport processes on the board, what you are trying to do from a strategy standpoint is cover the board with your color of all of these processes. You can only play connected um, reservoirs and transport processes. You can't play disconnected ones. So you can't play, for example, groundwater and sublimation. Sublimation is the process by which we take ice um, and put it back into the atmosphere, right? And so you can't play those two because they are not directly connected. They are indirectly connected, but you can't, they're not directly connected. You also right. can't play two reservoir cards at the same time. So you can't play like oceans and groundwater because you want to recognize that those connections exist. And then you can't play two transport processes for the same reason. And so the game plays out um, simultaneous. So you do head to head. We don't take turns. Um, and you are trying to cover the board as fast as you possibly can because the game ends when all of the area is controlled. The people win if they have more of the reservoirs and transport processes covered by their color than the other opponent. And so it's a very fast moving game but it actually requires quite a bit more strategy than it sounds like it does because that's where the math and the trickiness comes in. We can talk about that in a second because you look like you have a question. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to clarify. So this is, I don't want to say it's a dexterity game, but it's its a game that is going to make students have to make the right connections between parts of the process in order to make it through the game. Is yes. that basically the idea? Yes. Yes. Because if you play two cards that aren't connected, your opponent can call you out on those and you have to remove them from the board. And so you could lose that area of control. Right. And so you do have to make those connections. And that's why I was saying, so it kind of comes up Bloom's taxonomy, a few different levels. It's beyond just saying, Oh, I now know what the term assimilation means. Right. I now also know what assimilation is connected to. Right. And what it is not. And so those are the lower level Bloom's taxonomy that it's that it kind of hits. Uh, so we were talking about tricksiness. How do you get tricksy in a game where you're also trying to go fast? That's a great question. So nobody's asked about the probability of the game. There's not just one of each reservoir. There's not mm -hmm. just one of each transport process. The reservoirs and the transport process cards are weighted to where water is on the planet. So your probability of catching an ocean card is huge because the vast majority of our water is locked up in the oceans. 
your probability of catching a land surface card is extraordinarily small because land surface depression storage doesn't last long on the handful of days or weeks at the at the very most typically whereas your ocean reservoir could be thousands and thousands of years and so this is where it comes into that concept of scarcity and availability because there's this idea called residence time so the reason why scientists like to use box models is because we can start doing some first order approximations for the math that goes into how long does that water stay where it is just like we can think about the conversations and if you probably have seen this in news articles covering climate change of well if we stopped emitting co2 right now our co2 levels in the atmosphere would still be very high for a long time because of this concept called residence time and that's because that co2 stays in the atmosphere for for a long time uh, the same thing happens with water and so residence time of water in the hydrologic cycle is proportional to the size of the reservoir and hmm. the number of things going in and out of it right? So if you think about it as your bank account, right? Um, if your bank account is huge and the only bill that you have going out every month is rent and you don't pay for anything else, the amount in your bank account is going to stick there for a while, right? We can think about the average amount of time that that dollar that's, that, that's sitting in there is versus what's going out. Whereas if your bank account is small to start with and you have three like a, a part-time job and three gig jobs going in and then 17 bills going back out, a dollar on average ain't staying there very long, right? Right. The same thing happens with water. So hmm. if what you have is a cloud in the atmosphere and that cloud isn't very big in the context of how much water it can hold, and then you have constant evaporation and condensation happening, and then you have precipitation coming out the other side, that's going to move a heck of a lot faster so the average water droplet's not going to stay in that cloud for as long as that water droplet that ends up in the deep ocean. Right. Because not okay. a lot comes out of the deep ocean. And there's so, a whole lot hanging out there. This is this sounds really fun and dramatic. Uh, but what is play I'm assuming that you experimented on your on your students as as people are wont to do when they're designing Whoa. games. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so um how much development did the game go through and what kind of communicative back and forth role did your you and your students play with each other as it was as it was coming into being that's a great question so um this game was tested out on probably three or four different classes and different iterations um to get the card balance right so um, there's a lot of different ways you can math manipulate residence time as far as like probability um and to get it so that it was simultaneously fun enough to play and not onerous to shuffle because it, the number of ocean cards you would have to have <laughs> in comparison to everything else if it was actually a one-to-one -one, like yeah. you can't even it's not possible right um so to mess around with some of that to get the probability to work properly so that students could still recognize the patterns while not making the game onerous to play. That took some iterations to do. Um, I had a really great crew of students um, back in the kind of mid-2010s uh, uh, who, funny enough, a few of our student clubs here actually got so excited about the game, like they borrowed it and then they played Aww. it in their spare time <laughs> and then came back to me and was like, 
Dr. Robertson, we really like this, but this is really hard to see on the board. The arrows kind of overlap and it's kind of hard to tell where something's supposed to go. Could you fix that on the board? And so stuff like that um, was like all volunteer folks who were just like, hey, I really like the game. It was really, really fun and I want to play it. Um, and so some of our, yeah, some of our student clubs were, were in on the beta testing for the game as well. Um, and so it went through some iterations and some revisions. And then, of course, Lamaro Smith, uh, who is an amazing, amazing artist, uh, is actually doing the artwork for the final publication of this game. And he is doing wonders to move my stick figure cows into something. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. I made stick figure cows. I'm not much on the artistic component of these things. I did a lot more on the math and the probability. Oh, um, I feel you. <laughs> And so, like, he's been working wonders on the layout of the board, on the readability, um, making sure that all of the colors are accessible, everything about that. And so it's just turning into an absolute amazing work of art, thanks to him. Um, and so those are kind of the final touches that are coming onto the game right now. That's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, so you mentioned, you know, kind of bouncing between a realistic depiction of what's going on that will help the students learn and fun um how much fun do you think is necessary to make a classroom game work i do feel like if it's something that's overtly educational my students smell that a mile away they're not doing it um, <laughs> yeah i'm not a fan of chocolate covered broccoli um and so i don't tend to build things like that i do think um, I, I guess I have a leg up in that, again, going back to that backwards design thing where um, if, if you come into my classroom and you're playing a game in my classroom for something, it's because nothing else I tried to get the concept across worked, <laughs> right? Like it's the things that were going to suck on the syllabus anyway. <laughs> and so from that perspective, uh, I guess I'm sandbagging that a little bit, right? Because anything is funner than listening to me drone along, right? Um, and so that that tends to give me a leg up in the fun category uh, for that. Um, I don't necessarily go all fun. Um, I think there's there's a level of that that has to go towards engaging, but not necessarily fun. Um, and that's a balance to strike, right? Uh, some of my games are definitely more engaging than they are fun. Some of my games are a little bit more fun. Um, and they're and they're just kind of romps. But if it causes the students to stop and think about, okay, so where does this actually have a connection, and what do I need to do to win this, and where can I kind of go from there? Like this is, I mean, the alternative. So when I learned the hydrologic cycle, it was a lot of literally just write this out, draw this picture a hundred times, right? because it'll it'll sear into your brain, right? Um, there, I had a lot of really amazing professors, but some of them went pretty old school in the sense that like several of my courses when I was an undergraduate did this thing where everybody in a lab group would have to take a quiz and we would retake it every single week until everyone got 100%. And so it was like week 10, week 11, week 12, and we're redoing the same thing because somebody misspelled one thing the week before, right? Uh, you feel so bad if you're the one. Oh, so there was definitely that. Like, I guess it's a kind of game and competition, but not in a way that anybody really wants to be there. Um, right. This, you learn the concepts 
despite having to memorize things, right? And you learn the connections despite having to memorize it because it engages you to do that. And the other thing that I like about this is is that as a as a STEM focused instructor, I experience what a good chunk of my students come to me after 12 years of schooling um, traumatized by their by how they learned math um, and some and to some degree how they learned science. Um, not everybody, but a good chunk of them come in and they say, I'm no good at math. I can't do math or even literally have panic attacks about the prospect of doing math. And I teach this in a quantitative reasoning course. So emphasizing how we use statistics and data and visualizations to understand the world around us. And so this allows us an avenue of entry that is more instinctive and kind of intuitional for those students who are reticent to just start doing calculations out on the board. Because what will happen is is they play it once and they kind of get the terminology. They play it a second time and they start getting the connections. And usually somewhere in the second or third time that they play, they turn to me and they go, Dr. Robertson, this game is rigged. And I'm like, how do you think? How do you think this game is rigged? She's like, does everybody have the same cards? Yes, everybody has the same cards. Why can't I find this card? Why do you think you can't find this card? Let's explore that. Let's think about why it is that you just drew nine ocean cards. Mm-hmm. Why did you draw a nine ocean cards? Why can't you find that very last biosphere card? What do you think might be happening here? And so we take time to unpack the game after we play a handful of times and they have the opportunity to look at that and we go, okay, so here's the math behind the game. Here's why you couldn't find this. It's proportional to these things. And so those connections give you a kind of, again, intuitive and visceral experience of that water scarcity and that water availability and that water distribution without having to just do the math and just watch everybody turn to vague panic. (laughs) <laughs> the second we start writing equations on the board. So it sounds like this game has made your students happier as people. Um, I don't know what, if we go that far. <laughs> well, in your class. Uh, but also, you know, what what differences have you seen in terms of learning outcomes? To use some education speak. Uh, that's actually a great question. So uh, I published a paper about this game uh, in the Journal of Geoscience Education. Um, it came out 2021. 20, early 2022, um, looking at the outcomes. So we actually measured how students did with this. And their pre-test, post-test were just kind of through the roof. So you look at it and the effect size on this was a 0.8. Um, it, was, it was huge. We, we had pre-test um, averages down in the 20 to 25% range. And we had post-test averages up in the 80% range. And we saw that persist throughout the semester. So it wasn't just after the activity, but eight weeks later when they took the midterm, they still had that learning persistence with these, with the, with the learning outcomes and with the learning objectives. Oh, that's nice. They had it down. Yeah. Yeah. It locks in and it locks in without doing it against their will. It's kind of sneaky. Like I said, it's a little sneaky. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know that we talked about chocolate covered broccoli being bad, but I kind of feel like really good teaching is like those doctors that are like 
vaccinating babies and they do the dance and they're like oh do 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 like let's play around and like maybe they like touch the skin with the needle with the cap still on and then do shot keep going <laughs> and baby doesn't even have a, a time to cry and i i, I kind of feel like that's what gaming does in my classroom you know it's um it's fun to to hear about how well this can really work like from a scientist who actually took data that's nice <laughs> so i want to kind of touch on another thing that's come up a few times um in this conversation which is a contrast between serious games and non-serious games what do you mean by that and how do you think that that particular dichotomy like impacts your understanding of gaming like as a gamer and as an educator so when i define serious games i look at serious games as kind of the subcategory of games that there's a mission and a purpose driven behind them right um they aren't necessarily learning objectives per se because there is a differentiation between a game that's intended to teach specific objectives and a, a game that's intended to give you an influence of a concept or an idea but not necessarily drilled down to the level of learning objectives right, right. um i would say that most teaching games, most pedagogical academic games are a subset of serious games, and I might get pilloried by groups of people who disagree with that particular way that the um, apple gets sliced, but that would be my characterization. And as far as non-serious games, I don't mean that to be dismissive at all of other games. I mean it from the perspective of sometimes you play a game because you just like the idea of it, right? Um, you play a game because you like world builders. You play a game because you like write and rolls. Um, and that write and roll could be wrapped in seven different potential worlds. Um, and you would still play it because it's a write and roll, right? Um, there are some people who dig out every single game they can find on a subject. There's people who love to just dig out every single game they can find on a mechanic, right? Because it's the kind of thing that they like. That's not necessarily the same as saying something's a serious game because this, the serious game has a an intentionality behind it to teach or to influence in a particular way. So that would be the way that I would differentiate them. Interesting. And what kind of overlap mechanically uh, can there be between quote serious and non-serious games like what is what is making it from the non-serious world into your serious game production oh i mean i think the mechanics can definitely have a massive overlap right um it just depends on what it is you want to teach again i pull mechanics for the games that i design based on the things i want to teach um, those mechanics can be a combination of win objectives and learning objectives, right? Um, and those aren't necessarily the same thing, right? The With the hydrologic cycle game, for example, the win objective is just covering a board. The learning objective is nothing to do with covering a board. The learning objective has to do with pairing and identifying these pieces and recognizing the patterns on, on the game. And so those are complementary, but they are not necessarily one-to-one -one aligned. Um, and so I think that most academic games, if they are engaging and they play well, they use a combination of game mechanics and world building and illustration and art that complements both, that aren't solely driven to the purpose of fulfill the learning objective and aren't solely driven toward the purpose of make the game fun, um, but are a blend of those. 
that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so what do you think is about the range of complexity that it's possible for a game to have before it stops being about learning objectives and is maybe too much game, not enough point? That is a great question because one of my games that I am still trying desperately to get to work. <laughs> so half of it works really well. <laughs> Half of, no, no, half of it works so well. There's like seven other professors on this campus who use that half of the game. And the other half has bombed spectacularly. So it's called <laughs> Hurricane Attack. Where half of the game, you are a hurricane. And you are trying to gain speed. And you are trying to gain strength. And you are trying to basically become the biggest, baddest, meanest hurricane you possibly can. And so you're learning about things like wind shear and sea surface temperatures and light driving winds and all of the things that start to make a hurricane more powerful and more well-developed. That part of the game, everybody loves because it's a it's basically a right and roll. You, you roll dice, you do some math to multiply out, you pick the better of a couple of dice rolls, etc. And you build the biggest hurricane that you can. Um, it starts with kind of the probability of hurricane season and all these different types of things. And so you start to learn what drives hurricane formation. That's the part of it that, that everybody enjoys. The other part of it is the defense piece. And I personally like um, kind of the Dungeons and Dragons strategy style games where you're like trying to build a character or build a city or build these defense walls and all this. So it's very strategic. It's like, okay, so do I invest this um, this round in seawalls or nature-based solutions? Um, so do we put wetlands back and things like that to try to protect my area and things like that? That chunk of the game, if the students aren't gamers, they hate it with uh passion see because, i think it sounds fun but right right because you're a nerd um <laughs> got me <laughs> well no but that's true like the gamers like it because it's the strategy thing and you're building up and you're trying to like predict a couple of turns in advance it's like okay so what's the probability of me getting hit during this season what do i need to invest in like those types of things where you can kind of build up these defenses um but if you are not a gamer, <laughs> that feels like this onerous slog. And this is like, what is the point? This is like, it's five times slower than write and roll and build a big hurricane and those different types of pieces. So the asynchronicity of some of that and the turn waiting and things like that. Deep in gamers, interested in it. But the majority of the students aren't necessarily those, right? And so there's a bar to entry that I think I've hit at least and um, my amazing colleague Daria Kluver who is a climatologist and also does quite a bit of uh, academic gaming we call it the settlers of Catan level if the mechanics are more complicated than settlers of Catan level and you are not willing to play the game three or four times in a semester to kind of scaffold it um, and you're not willing to in invest multiple hours in teaching the game it's not going to fly in most undergraduate classrooms. And so there is there is that tipping point where the mechanics do have to be intuitive enough that you're not going to just get resistance. And so if your game manual is 35 pages long, bless your heart, um, there are some people who will do that with you. But the average student will balk. It makes sense. 
I like that Settlers of Catan rule of thumb. That's like very relatable, I think, for people who are gaming and then trying to turn yeah. a pitch. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is like, I do have games that take days to teach, but we play them for a month and a half. And so the payoff right. on that is that. Um, but a game like the Hydrologic Cycle game, which the Hydrologic Cycle, even in a water resources based class, you might spend a week on those concepts. And a week in a university level classroom might be three hours, four hours. That's that's kind of the level you've got. And so if that's the amount of time that you have to teach all of these concepts, you do not want a game that takes 45 minutes to learn. Right. I mean, it makes sense. So the other thing that's kind of interesting about this conversation is that, you know, you've mentioned several professors who are using your game, at least the hurricane attack part, which actually does sound really fun. Um, it's called it's called hurricane attack when you not hurricane defend. Just... I know, right? <laughs> but I feel like gaming in the classroom is very hot right now, but I also feel like it's been getting hotter over time. You know, what is your experience with that as somebody who has seems to have liked games for a really long time? is probably always kind of like games in the classroom. You know, what kind of changes have you noticed like on the scene when it comes to using games in the classroom? So I think things like um, evolution and wingspan um, have kind of been watershed moments, at least in the STEM side of things, uh, because they are the, they're kind of the first set of things where you can look at it and go, oh, there is a serious component to this popularly available thing that could then be adapted very straightforwardly to teaching objectives within my classroom, right? Um, that's a little, I think it, we're, STEM folks are made a little bit late to the party on that, um, not universally, but I think we've been, we've been slower to gain traction on that. I think COVID really hurt that in a certain way, because gaming was really coming into its own, um, academic gaming was really coming into its own, and then lockdown and pivot and online um like so for example the hydrologic cycle game does not translate on online because the second that you have lag because of slow wi-fi an yeah. area control game where it is head-to-head -head and not turn-based it decimates the mechanics right so that's one of those interesting things we were like kind of struggling with okay so how would we pivot that to that particular audience and some games, it just doesn't make sense to make that round peg a square, right? Um, but I think a lot of folks, just because of the amount of time that it would have taken to pivot those activities, went back to the tr old traditionals, which is here's a PowerPoint and here's a worksheet. And these are the things you need to do with that. Um, there were some great simulation, online simulations that came out during this, that time. But by and large, I think that might have slowed the growth and expansion of games i'm hopeful that it'll come back um and maybe it was just a pause instead of a kind of peaking um right. but it was just tough to see well i'm definitely hoping for the best i'm very much looking forward to hydrologic cycle uh but time for some fun questions so what games have you been playing uh just to enjoy yourself these days uh so board game and tabletop game kind of things i kickstarted a couple of really cool things that have been coming through the fulfillment pipeline and i've been getting a chance to play with um there's one called dark tomb which is kind of a it's a dungeon crawl um card-based dungeon crawl which has been really kind of fun to play around with um i also kickstarted steam up which is really fun and intricate little uh little pieces where you're strategically capturing dim sum 
Um, so it was a really oh. cool experience to kind of look at and go, okay, so that dim sum or that dim sum and what am I going to be able to capture for those um, and trading things. And that's been a fun little mechanic game to play. Um, do you have to admit, I am... Um, I do a lot of gaming on my phone nowadays because I have small children. Um, and so tabletop games, mommy, what's that piece? Yoink. Uh, so <laughs> I do a lot of gaming on my phone instead. Um, and so I'm into, I guess I, I don't know if I should admit this or not. Um, I'm into this game called farm RPG. Um, and I do that a lot. Uh, so it is a, it is a farm simulator. Uh, I grow crops in the virtual because my garden won't grow when it gets hit by three late frosts in May. <laughs> There's no shame, only joy in these games. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> uh, and then are there any board games that you can play on your phone that go well? Just out of curiosity. I mean, I think there are a handful of things like that. Um, but most of them are solitary, um, which I guess is great when I'm talking to somebody who named their podcast Beyond Solitaire. Uh, but I mean, that's a <laughs> You got the traditionals, you got like Sudoku and you've got word games and puzzle games and uh, and logic games and things like that. I like I like mechanics and probability and messing around with a lot of those. Uh, so I play a handful of those every now and then. Nice. And then um, if people want to contact you or just follow your work about Hydrologic Cycle and other games that you're doing, uh, where can you be found online? Uh, email. I am... I am on a social media diet. I don't really do it. Uh, so the best way to get a hold of me is via my work email, which is R-O-B, as in boy, E-R-2-W at C-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. Or you can go and Google Central Michigan University Wendy Robertson and I will pop up there. Fantastic. I always admire people who can avoid social media because I just really cannot. I'm hooked. It, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I can be found anywhere as Beyond Solitaire <laughs> is brand consistency <laughs> it's important uh, but uh, Wendy thank you so much for coming on the podcast I feel like I learned a lot about water and enjoyed it so that's the goal now I'm really looking forward to playing this game <laughs> can't wait but uh, thank you so much for coming on uh, everybody else out there please uh, like subscribe comment ask questions and most of all Happy gaming.